Lord, I pray that you would open your word to your people this morning. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe what your spirit wants to do in and for us. As you lead us to do our part, the opening, the tending, to which you have called us. Amen. So, um, trees intentionally grow slow. In uh, his book, The Hidden Life of Trees, Peter Volleben describes how a mother tree nurses her young saplings springing up from the seeds under her branches. Low on the forest floor, these sprigs of baby trees must grow slow. The mother demands it. She only lets about 3% of the available sunlight through her canopy to get to her little baby trees. Rather than letting the youngster eat incessantly to premature heights, she covers it and nurses it actually underground, sending food to its roots just enough to keep it alive, but not enough to let it grow tall. See, slow growth is the key to long life for a tree, and mother trees know this. The community of trees that we call the forest uh, are aware of this fact, and uh, they store this knowledge, we don't know where, we actually don't know a lot about trees, surprisingly. Uh, it's, they don't have a brain, so it's not there. Uh, but we also know that they have other senses, that they can smell, that they can store information about time, that they can actually feel and more human-like things that we don't often think of trees as having. Uh, so we don't know a lot about how this all works, but what we do know is that trees know that slow growth is essential for their youngsters to have a long and good life, and that mother trees support their young children by being very strict against rapid growth. In our society, sort of one of neo-capitalism, one that is focused on unrestricted growth, emphasizing technological advancement and how we can grow even faster, marked by multinational and even global corporations. In our society, one of late-stage capitalism, one that is increasingly unstable as the divide between income and inequality expands, where there is a high level of debt and a focus on short-term profits over long-term sustainability, the wisdom of slow growth, the wisdom of the trees, seems to be for the birds. But I wonder if the same is true for the church. Because, of course, we think and we believe that growth matters, right? Our personal growth, our growth 
as a church, for society, growth matters. And even for trees, growth does matter. One of our seven core values as a church is growth. But what does it mean to grow up in our faith? We believe that this gospel message is good news. It's good news for everyone. And here in this season of epiphany that we are in, these seasons following Christmas, we celebrate the, the um, epiphany that the Magi had, that we actually believe that this good news is for everyone, not just the Jewish people, but it's for all nations, all kinds of people, all skin colors, all backgrounds, all abilities, all cultures, that this can actually be good news for all of us, that all of us can be made better and whole and well by this message. But it is a little audacious to claim that, isn't it? Our best missional tactics can sort of teeter on cultural appropriation, while our worst mirror the destructive effects of colonization. But because we believe that this is good news, we send missionaries to far-flung corners of the world where the church isn't yet present to start pioneering this work of getting this message to people all over the globe. And this practice of sending uh, missionaries is actually how we get our passage this morning. Paul took three missionary journeys himself. And on the second, he visited this place called Corinth. And he established a work there. He established a church in the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth was known as this kind of place of extravagance. Uh where people were known for sort of fleshly living. There was a saying, uh, to live like a Corinthian. Uh, and that would mean that you were sort of living this um, life of fleshly pleasures, rich food, uh, extravagant polytheism were very was very common um, there. One uh, pagan temple in Corinth uh, was known for having a thousand temple prostitutes. I think of ancient Corth, uh, Corinth a little bit like I think of maybe Las Vegas. Somewhere I certainly don't want to visit. Um, no shame on anyone who wants to visit Las Vegas. I just don't personally want to visit Las Vegas. And I much less want to go there on a missionary journey. Um, Corinth and America in 2023 might also have a few things in common, I think. A center of trade, Corinth was sort of ideally situated, and even when Rome took it over, uh, Corinth uh, was sort of made the capital of the entire region, so it was still sort of the center of influence. Um, Corinth was a place where these extravagant buffets, worshiping a variety of um, gods and fleshly pleasures, pleasures was commonplace, which kind of reminds me of going to Disney World. And, uh, you know, this place where you can go and pay literally ungodly amounts of money to eat ungodly amounts of food, uh, but you could fill in that blank for a, a cruise ship or uh, Las Vegas or, you know, fill in the blank. 
Um, Corinth was this place where many philosophies and theologies sort of converged. Um, and it was kind of had a sim- central role in the social life to sort of converse about these philosophies and theologies. I'm sure they thought of themselves as really evolved and advanced to have being able to consider all these thoughts and ideas. So I think there are some similarities, and I get it. I think that Paul was frustrated with the slow growth of his baby sapling of a church. He wanted to see more growth out of them. He wanted to see the, gro- the church grow up to maturity. And by the end of our passage today, I can't help but wonder if what Paul actually works out as he's speaking, sometimes I work out things while I'm speaking too, uh, is that Paul is actually more frustrated maybe at God than at the church in Corinth. Uh, and I'll, I'll get there to why. But after Paul gives the church a good tongue lashing for not growing faster, he gets into a metaphor that I think is worth digging into a little bit more. He says, For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not fleshly and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not all too human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. For the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and each will receive the wages according to their own labor. For we are God's co-workers working together. You are God's field, God's building. So yes, Paul is frustrated at the lack of growth and the presence of jealousy and quarreling. I put those chairs there to block the kids' view, but I clearly didn't block it enough. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, jealousy and quarreling, um, the jealousy and quarreling Paul talks about has to do with which person is the leader. You know, whose, whose message are we believing? Who are we the disciples of? Whose theology will win out? Which feels like a very Corinthian thing to debate. Uh, some say Paul. Others, Apollos. Um, does Paul emphasize the same thing as Apollos in his teaching? I guess probably not, since they're debating it. Uh, We don't have records of the exact differences of the message Paul gave versus Apollos. And I read some commentaries to be sure that that was true. That was true. I also uh, typed the differences of Paul and Apollos' teaching in Corinth into ChatGBT just to confirm that, yes, we don't exactly know what the differences are. We basically have what is in this passage here, that there are some differences and that there are some, some quarreling and jealousy among there. 
in there because of it. And I wonder if the similarities between us and Corinth aren't just um, cultural similarities, but I also if, wonder if in the church of Corinth and the church in America, we might also have some similarities about the kinds of quarreling and jealousy that can happen. One might say, I follow Charles Stanley. Another, I follow Andy Stanley. Another, I follow Rick Warren. Another, I follow Richard Rohr. And another, I follow Rob Bell. Rob Bell, the first one says, he's a heretic. No, he's not. He's just relevant, and you're scared. And your leaders are the ones who have problems. Haven't you been following all of those scandals? Of course, they're not perfect humans. Anyone, look at any leader in the Bible, and you will see that they all had flaws. But look at the fruit of his ministry. The fruit, you say, yes, there might be some gro growth, but it's shallow growth. And who cares if there is, what does it matter if there is some small growth somewhere, if some people are extremely harmed and deeply harmed by these people? Shallow? We have seen supernatural healings. You are too occupied with politics. Politics? It's not the politics. It's the policies that hurt real people. Haven't you read Isaiah 58 about the real kinds of spiritual practices God desires? God desires justice. How about second? Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. See, see, repentance must come first before social action. And so what could be wrong with a revival if people are repenting and being healed? Because that's the first step after all. We'll see. We'll see if that revival actually brings about any real fruit of justice. We'll see what happens when it's over. Nah, there's no similarities. We don't know how to take sides and oppose one another as laborers in God's field, God's building. And the stunning thing in today's passage, the sort of like mic drop that Paul gets to, uh, is that it's not the preacher, it's not the teacher, it's not the missionary, it's not the planter or the water or the architect or the structural engineer or the builder that actually give the growth. God gives the growth. God is the one who gives the growth. So if Paul is frustrated that there's not enough Growth? Huh. Why, you might ask, was there jealousy and quarreling in Corinth? Could it have been that God was actually at work and that the people there wanted to explain it or wanted to claim it? Uh, wanted to maybe get credit for their part or wanted to give credit to the right person for the growth and that if the right person couldn't get credit, then they wanted to discredit the growth altogether. 
What a warning for us today. Our related Old Testament passage talked about the importance of following the law as they entered the promised land. The law, which is summed up with the Ten Commandments, or as Jesus summed up later, with the basic love God, love your neighbor. In this law, there is no place for jealousy and quarreling. Using God and the Bible to bash other people's relationship with God has no place in this land. Paul is frustrated, rightfully so, that he has preached a message of love and incarnation, and it has been used not in the spirit of love and incarnation, but to create more human division. Paul, therefore, uses this letter to humble himself, to try to show the way forward. And he does that by calling himself a field laborer, which for the agrarian uh, society of Corinth was about the lowest position on the social totem pole. Himself and Apollos, those who were sent, who maybe deserved some honor if anyone did, put himself at the bottom of the totem pole and said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. Stop being jealous of what is happening through someone else's hands. They are God's servant. You are God's servant. We are all a body, and we don't all have the same role, and that is good. There is diversity, and that is a good thing, and God is using us to bring the growth together. Be careful, Paul says later in the chapter, because what you build with does matter. You can't lay a foundation other than Christ, he says. The quality of the work matters. But it's ultimately God who gives the growth. It is not about me, you, him, them. But we still haven't really addressed what growth is. So for that, I'm going to turn to our Ephesians passage, which we'll read in a little bit. But I'm going to go ahead and read it now. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. He himself granted that some are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us have come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. To maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine and by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way to him who is the head into Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. So here is our description of growth. 
Through this spirit of God, we have the opportunity to grow up into maturity. But you see in this passage that it doesn't happen if we are constantly tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine and by people's trickery. There are people whose goal, I believe probably subconscious goal, is to cause division in the church. Do not let them toss you around. It is not by our divisions that we grow whole. It is in working together in this spirit that we can become whole and mature. Our identity is not in what kind of Christians we are not. Our identity is in the Spirit's presence in our lives, testifying to who we are and how well we are able to listen, to move at the impulse of that Spirit matters in our level of maturity. Do we still need harsh letters telling us that quarreling and jealousy with those we have found a way to disagree with have no place here? Or have we reached a place where God's Spirit is able to offer us her gifts because she stands at the door and knocks? And if we are of the flesh, if we are fleshly, we are blown about by outward arguments and concerns filled with anxiety of the many things that come up in the news and in our world. We feel guilty about our prayers. We struggle to provide for ourselves we move on when things get hard. We avoid conflicts at all costs. We let others dictate our schedules. We eat to feel better. But to be of the flesh, to be fleshly, is what Paul accuses the Corinthians of. He doesn't want them to be immature and fleshly. But actually, our flesh is not the problem, right? We Gnosticism was a condemned as a heresy a long time ago. It is not that we take off the flesh, but rather flesh is the only way that we can be filled with the Spirit of God. We can only be filled with God's Spirit in our flesh. We are not called to be of the flesh, but we are called to be filled with the Spirit in the flesh, like Jesus was. Jesus was God's presence in the flesh, and we are called to maturity to grow up from being of the flesh to being God's presence in the flesh. We are called to rhythms of life and rest and prayer and silence and joy. We are called to intentionality, even when it's difficult, to grow deep roots, to open ourselves up to practices of imperfect hospitality, spiritual reading, Sabbath, and prayer that are pathways to this rooted and grounded life because it's not like this comes and we have no choice. We have a choice. God gives the growth, but we must be willing, and not just willing, not like blown about willing, but intent on it. To be blown about is our natural state but the good news is that God's spirit is a rooted spirit 
It is a grounded spirit. It is a stable spirit. And actually, maybe there is no hurry in this growth process. Maybe it takes as long as it takes. And maybe some of us are actually more impatient with our own growth than God is. (laughs) Maybe giving up your will, giving up your life to God is consecrating your ideas of what growth looks like. Being open to God's presence might be being willing to be the little sapling at the roots of the mother tree that grows so, so slow. But maybe, maybe you don't feel those roots at all. Maybe you need the roots, the presence of God to stabilize you in the midst of a world of being uh, blown about by this unruly wind tossed to and fro. And we do believe that you can access in a moment that the roots of God's spirit, that in a moment you can actually become a child of God filled with God's spirit because God has given God's spirit as a gift to everyone to us all, to anyone who is willing to receive the Spirit. So no matter where you are, we're going to take just the next couple minutes before the kids come in, and Hannah's going to come in a minute and lead us in one more song, which you're welcome to sing, Um, but we're also just going to pray as a prayer, and we're just going to take a couple minutes to slow down and to take stock. Take stock if where you're at, if you need roots, if you need to surrender or want to surrender your growth to God's care. And maybe you can uh, just take these next few minutes to pray. Um, Prayer can take many postures, um, but sometimes the hard thing to do is to pray in a way that others can see that we are praying. to consecrate our lives, to give over all the big and small things that we hold on to. That's the invitation. To surrender to this love and a posture of trust is sometimes necessary.